You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here. The presidential cycle this year has been unique in how little of the debate is focused on actual policy issues. It seems nuance is not what candidates believe will inspire voters to cast a ballot for them in November. But one interesting exception to that has been international trade policy and how it affects American jobs. That has come up many times here uh, during the campaign. And of course, it resonates very strongly here in Michigan, where manufacturing jobs uh, are part of the backbone of the economy, and they have been affected more dramatically by trade agreements. Uh, It's the most we've talked about the long-term effects of NAFTA in many years, both nationally and here in Michigan. And it's put a spotlight on the Trans-Pacific partnership, the TPP, and what that would mean for our economy and our jobs. Both major candidates have come out against the TPP, but economists are more divided. What's the right approach? Is it is it isolationism and protectionism espoused by Donald Trump and his supporters, or is it about renegotiating our existing trade agreements, as Hillary Clinton has suggested she would like to do? Or Is it knocking down all the barriers to the free flow of goods and money across borders? My next guest is an economist who is quite critical of the TPP. Dean Baker is the co-director for the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks a lot for having me on. Yeah. Uh, So let's talk about uh, what your objections are to the TPP and sort of how they relate to trade policy more generally. NAFTA, of course, is also uh, one of the targets. It's uh, being being discussed during this presidential election. Uh, uh, talk about the TPP and then uh, get to to the larger the larger. Okay. Well, well, first off, the the TPP actually has very little to do with reducing barriers to trade, and the reason for that is the barriers that exist, particularly with the countries in the TPP, are already very low. We already have trade agreements with six of the eleven other countries in the TPP, uh-huh. and among the others is Japan, which we already have a vast amount of trade with. So we're not really talking about reducing tariffs and quotas, conventional barriers. I mean, there is some of that in there, but no one wastes their time treating this as a big deal if that's what it was about. Really what the deal is about is about putting in place a set of uh, regulatory structure, rules that largely favor business. They're enforced by the, these, this extrajudicial mechanism. When I first started telling people about it, they thought I was you know, making this stuff up like a conspiracy theorist. It puts in place these investor state dispute settlement mechanisms, which stand outside the judicial system they they aren't their their rulings are not appealable and you know they're basically set up to give investors rights that uh, others do not have right. so that's kind of an extraordinary mechanism another big part of it is strengthening and lengthening copyright and and patent related protections and one of the things i get a big kick out of is people talking about free trade and go no these are the opposite of free trade i mean a, a patent is a government granted monopoly i mean I understand the purpose i mean that's supposed to provide incentive to innovate. But nonetheless, it, it, it's a form of protection, and it's, it's a very extraordinary form of protection because you know, usually when we're looking at tariffs or 10%, 20%, patent can raise the price of a, a product, and here I'm thinking for, first and foremost prescription drugs, it can raise the price of a, a prescription drug a hundredfold compared to the generic price. So uh, a drug, the hepatitis C drug, Sovati, it's a list price here of $84,000. The treatments, high-quality generics are available in India for less than $500. So that's like a 10,000% tariff. And the market responds to that exactly as if you put down a 10,000% tariff. They don't care. The market doesn't care that you called it a patent rather than a tariff. Same effect. 
So I consider that really, really bad news. I mean, I think that's, you know, a very counterproductive part of the story. The last point that I'll make, and I think it's an important one in terms of, you know, if we're negotiating a deal like this, is we should have rules on currency. This has been a big factor in why the U.S. lost so many jobs in manufacturing in the last decade. You know, prior to the Great Recession, we lost over 2 million jobs from 2000 to 2008 before the Great Recession started. And that was largely because you had countries, most importantly China, but other countries as well, that were deliberately keeping down the value of their currency in order to have a competitive advantage against the U.S. And that's a very, very harmful practice. And, you know, again, you know, we don't have to address that in the TPP, but if you're having a big deal and you're not addressing currency management, that seems to me a really big problem. Yeah. Uh, The currency issue is one that uh, we've heard before. I mean, I've had meetings with members of Congress for several years in which they've brought up the currency uh, issue and the lack of, of, uh, you know, sort of aggressive response to that in the TPP. Uh, But but your criticism, your criticism and the criticism uh, coming from Donald Trump and and others right now seems much broader uh, about this, this, uh, just the balance, right? Uh, But but between uh, free trade and protecting our economy and our jobs. And it goes, it goes beyond currency, is what you're saying. Well, it certainly goes beyond currency. But again, I, don't e- I wouldn't even say these are really free trade issues at this point. I mean, you know, our tariffs are already very close to zero. We largely have free trade. Now, again, we could argue whether that was a good thing or not. We could argue whether NAFTA was a good thing. But we can't run the clock backwards. Right. So we can't reverse, you know, the, the, the factories that have moved to Mexico there's no easy way to bring those back. You know, I know Donald Trump says that, but that's just not really very serious. Sure. So, so we already largely have free trade. So what I see at TPP is really not at all about free trade. It's overwhelmingly about putting in place a business-friendly structure of regulation. And then on top of that, as I say, stronger and longer patent and copyright protections. I mean, that's great for Bill Gates. It's great for <laughs> Pfizer. You know, it's great for, for the entertainment industry. But for the rest of us, it means higher prices, and that, that's, that's 180 degrees at odds with free trade. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Dean Baker. He's the co-director for the Center for Economic and Policy Research. We are talking about trade, trade in the context of the 2016 presidential election, trade specifically with regard uh, to the Trans-Pacific Partnership and NAFTA. Uh, these have been issues that have come up over and over again during the campaign. I expect that they will continue to come up uh, throughout the fall as we get closer to November. Uh, give us a call. Tell us what you think of the trade agreements uh, that America has or is debating. Tell us what you think about uh, the jobs picture here and how it's affected by uh, those, trade ag- uh, those trade agreements. Talk to us about whether these trade agreements are too business friendly. Dean Baker just talked about how uh, these are agreements that are really about uh, protecting businesses from regulation uh, as opposed to opening trade uh, with other countries. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. And tell us what you think about what the candidates are saying. Do you agree with Donald Trump that uh, that NAFTA has destroyed American jobs and that the TPP will continue to do that? Or do you agree with Hillary Clinton who says, look, uh, these agreements are important. We should renegotiate them to be more favorable uh, toward our interests, uh, but we can't scrap them. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number. Let's go to Greg in Fraser. Greg, welcome to Detroit Today. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I just wanted to mention that I believe currently right now, 
um, uh, there's a company, TransCanada, is suing the U.S. government under NAFTA for $50 billion because they were planning on building this Keystone Pipeline, uh, which would just carry oil through the U.S., the dirtiest oil, carry it into the U.S., refine it, leave all the pollution in the U.S., and then send all the, all the, the gasoline to China. Um, and, and they wanted to make a profit. And we uh, voted, or I mean, we decided we didn't want to build this Keystone Pipeline. And so now they're under NAFTA, I believe they're suing the U.S. government for $50 billion. And, um, and that's just under NAFTA. Um, uh, I believe that um, Ross Perot was correct back in the 90s when he said there'd be a giant sucking sound of all the jobs going south. I believe once NAFTA was passed, all those jobs moved. I believe the, the, I think there was a Korea trade agreement as well. Same thing happened there. Now our trade imbalance uh, with Korea is is uh, very uh, worse than it was when before we entered into the trade agreement. Uh, let alone the uh, sovereignty, our own sovereignty that they're we're going to uh, kind of uh, subjugate to this unelected corporate council. There's, as, from what I understand, there's an unelected corporate council then that can rule on all this. We have no say in that at all. We have no way to elect these people or elect this council. It's all going to be done by uh, corporate uh, lawyers. Um, uh, so, this- so, Greg, uh, uh, sorry to interrupt, but, but uh, tell me what you think the, the solution is to, to those things. Would you eradicate these trade agreements? Uh, do you think that, that, uh, that the agreements themselves or a free trade are a threat to the American economy or American jobs? Or do you just think we're making bad deals? I, I, I think they're a threat to the, to the U.S. economy. You know, before when we used to have tariffs back in the early 1900s, sure. we didn't have an income tax. The tariffs paid for all the taxes. The U.S. government didn't even have an income tax then. And um, um, I... I I mean, we have all these global companies that uh, I, I look at it as more of it's, it's a convenience for the, these global corporations that they can move into all these different companies. I mean, it, it's it's um, sometimes inefficiency is good in that you have a lot more that, then you have um, more variations, uh, more mom and pop businesses, more. Um, rather than these giant companies just come in and take over the market. Yeah. So, um, so you would go back to, in, 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 your, in your view, you'd go back to the sort of pre-free trade uh, economy, right? Uh, where, yeah. Uh, and, and let alone these are, these are they, they come free trade agreements, but they're really treaties. Right. But they're not being put, uh, they're not being, um, uh, approved by the government as treaties, they're being approved more as like these. They call them free trade agreements, but from my understanding, they're really tr- in essence yeah, treaties, right, yeah. and uh, we're not really putting them through all the uh, paces in terms of getting them passed the way you would enter into a treaty, a treaty rather than sure. a trade agreement. Yeah, uh, yeah. Greg, thank you very much uh, for your call, uh, Dean Baker. Respond to what what Greg is is saying there uh, about. Uh, the, the the way that these that these agreements work, he, he says, you know, in the early part of the last century, we didn't have income tax because we had tariffs, and uh, that's what paid for for government. Is it realistic to to sort of think in those terms today and and uh, sort of imagine a world that could that could dial the clock back that way? Well, I'd say not really. I mean, you know, the idea of funding the U.S. government through tariffs, I think, would be very, very hard to do. We have a lot bigger government, you know, you know, starting 
Social Security, Medicare. I mean, our military is, of course, much, much bigger. I mean, even relative to the size of the economy, you go down the list. So I, I don't see any way you, you could fund it through tariffs, nor I think would, that, that would be desirable. I mean, it, you know, we, we have a lot of international trade, a huge amount of international trade. The idea that you would, uh, you know, presumably not, Greg doesn't, isn't proposing bringing it down to zero, but, you know, to, to substantially cut that back through tariffs, I think, would, you know, be very, very disruptive to the economy. Uh, you know, so I, I have a hard time, you know, again, we could argue whether NAFTA was a good idea. You know, I didn't think so at the time, but, but that was 20 years ago. You know, right. we, can't, we can't reverse that, or at least not in any easy way. It'd be when very, you, very difficult. When you hear Donald Trump uh, speaking on the campaign trail about trade, do you hear him sort of hinting toward that, though, toward uh, a system that would rely more on protectionist policy like tariffs? Well, clearly he's indicated he wants more tariffs. Now, what his vision is, you know, I, I can't really say. I don't really want to speculate. I mean, I don't, I don't know. In other words, I don't, I don't think any know. of us knows, right? Yeah, you know, so I don't want to put words <laughs> in his mouth. I really don't know what his vision is. He, he's indicated he wants to have tariffs, whether that's a permanent thing or, you know, a negotiating ploy. Now, now as a negotiating ploy, you know, President Obama does that, too. We put tariffs. There's a number of sectors where, you know, we've accused countries, uh, most prominently China, but I'm sure there have been others, where we've accused them of dumping in particular areas, you know, in solar panels, um, you know, a number of other areas at different points. Clearly, they're dumping in steel, I expect. I I don't know where any action stands at this point, but I think it's very likely we'll see one if we haven't already. Um, So, you know, you do put up tariffs in those cases to, you know, ultimately that ends up before the WTO, and, you know, the question is whether, in fact, they're dumping or not. So tariffs as a negotiating tool you know, is something we do now and, you know, makes perfect sense. But I'm not sure whether or not, you know, that's uh, Donald Trump's idea is, you know, use them as a tool or, you know, that's his end goal. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Dean Baker. He's the co-director for the Center for Economic and Policy Research. We are talking about trade and trade agreements in the context of the 2016 presidential election. Both candidates have talked critically about uh, some trade agreements, the TPP, NAFTA. Hillary Clinton says uh, there are deals that can be improved and that she will work to improve them. Donald Trump says they're just bad deals and uh, he might want to withdraw from them or go back to a time uh, when trade was more restricted here in the United States. If you have uh, thoughts about that, uh, thoughts about what the candidates are saying, thoughts about trade more generally, talk about how trade has affected your life here in uh, Michigan and Detroit. Jobs, of course, have have disappeared, uh, a lot of people would say, because of the trade agreements, the open trade agreements that we have. 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. That's 313-577-1019. Let's go to Terry in Detroit. Terry, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Hope you're well. Yes, good. I hope you're well, too. Well, what I wanted to say is that, you know, the U.S., in large part, exported around the world for years and years. We built our economy um, in, in many ways by exporting into other countries. There was a very different standard of living between the United States and the rest of the world, and it is simply inevitable that other countries are going to want to have the kind of standard of living we have. And I think it's just it's naive to think that we're going to be able to build a wall around trade in the United States and say that everything has to be produced here and sold here. Yeah. It just, it, it, the world doesn't work that way. 
But um, yeah, but but the, the the question then is, uh, if we do that, if we if we open ourselves uh, to that sort of international economy, do we sacrifice uh, the ability of Americans uh, to sort of easily access work, uh, work and pay for that work? Uh, because it, 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 it chips overseas. And, and well, then what do we do about those Americans, right? I think, I think GDPs are growing all over the world for the most part. Commerce is growing all over the world. And I think what we have to do is look forward and say, how do we position the United States to uniquely take advantage of the growth that is available? You know, one of the things we hear constantly um, is that we don't have enough people to supply the demand for jobs in the IT sector. Uh-huh. I think we have to really encourage people to go aggressive around education that will help them take advantage of where the world is. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think you're absolutely right, uh, Tara. That's a great point. Thanks very much for the call. Uh, Dean Baker, talk about how trade policy affects uh other kinds of policies here in the U.S. Terry brings up uh, education, for instance, training. Uh, is it that the, poli- the, the, the the trade agreements themselves are not the problem so much as we don't have the appropriate domestic policies to match the current sort of trade landscape uh, in an international sense? Well, you could counteract bad effects from trade policy with good domestic policy. I don't think there's anything, any doubt about that. But uh-huh. that's not an easy thing to do. Right. You have to spend right. an awful lot more money, have an awful lot of redistribution. And, you know, frankly, I just don't think that's in the offing. I mean, could we raise taxes by $300 billion a year on wealthy people? I know, you know, that, that's probably what you're talking about. I mean, our trade policy has been quite deliberately designed to put our manufacturing workers in direct competition with low-paid workers in China and right. other developing countries. And the predicted and actual effects, people sometimes say, oh, it didn't go as planned. No, it went exactly as planned. The predicted and actual effect of that is to cost jobs in that sector, put downward pressure on the wages of less educated workers, yeah. essentially people without college degrees. And that's been a really big deal. And then on top of that, you know, the trade deficit you know, sometimes you hear the term secular stagnation. We don't have enough demand in the economy. Right. Well, that relates directly to the trade deficit. If we had balanced trade, I'm not saying we need balanced trade, but, you know, just uh, as a point of reference, if we had balanced trade, that would be the same, the same impact on the economy as a $500 billion annual stimulus program. Right. That would right. be a huge impact on demand. So this has had a very big negative effect on the economy. Now, again, we could counteract that, but I just don't, let me put it this way, no politician is out there of any prominence with a plan that would counteract the negative impacts of trade. Right, but you also don't have uh, politicians out there with practical ways to rein in the policies themselves. I mean, even what Hillary Clinton is discussing or talking about, I don't know, gets to the... Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say either Clinton or Trump are, but, you know, let, let me just put out a hypothetical. The yeah. biggest single issue, I'd say, is currency. And, right. you know, we negotiate with other countries. And, again, I hate to keep picking on China, but clearly they're the biggest actor here. Suppose in our negotiations with China, we're saying, look, you know, we have all these issues with China. I remember hearing once Timothy Guyton, his Treasury Secretary, talking about saying, oh, we have these issues. You know, they don't respect our copyrights. They don't respect our patents. They don't have open access for our financial industry. Suppose we said, okay, we want all those things, but really what's most important is we want you to raise the value of your currency. We want you to give us a timeline to raise the value of your currency by 20%. You know, I'm picking a number out of the air. I don't know if that's the right number. I can't believe that couldn't be negotiated. 
clearly that's not been the priority because, you know, we want to, you know, protect Microsoft's copyrights. We want to protect Pfizer's patents. We want to get access to their markets for Goldman Sachs. So I don't think that's, in principle, an impossible thing to do. It's just a question of priorities. Right, right. Uh, let's go to Brandon in Highland Park. Brandon, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I think the last guest and the, the last comment that came back kind of stole my thunder because oh, you know, really <laughs> I, I, I think they hammered it home that you know, trade, trade is not that much different than automation. And, and when we talk about trade, we're basically sending paper to these places and they send us finished goods. And we, we get that at a, at a better deal than what we have done at, at home. And, and, and then what the, the, the gentleman just said about, you know, it's, it's, it's politically impossible to do the education and the things that we need to do here for the better jobs of the future and to really not compete for widgets, but to, to do those jobs of the future and just always be ahead it's really a political problem. It really it's not an economic problem. I mean, if we have to spend $500 billion, like he says, in deficit spending, then that's what we do. But we, we control the U.S. currency, and I think we should be taking advantage of that and not squandering it by competing with widgets. Yeah, yeah. Brandon, uh, great point, uh, and thanks very much uh, for your call. Let's go to Michelle in Detroit. Michelle, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thank you. Uh-huh. My my impression in just listening to this is that it sounds like TPP is a deal for big corporations, and uh, I just increasingly worry about things that may ostensibly improve the economy by increasing GDP, but I think that's increasingly removed from the actual experience of individuals in terms of employment and individual income, cost of living, things like that. So even if it increases our economy in that metric, that doesn't mean it's good for Americans. Yeah, yeah. No, Michelle, uh, great, great point as well. Thanks very much for the call. Uh, uh, Dean Baker, before I let you go, I want to ask you about uh, Michigan in particular. I know uh, you uh, used to be here with us in Michigan at the University of Michigan. Uh, uh, Talk about the specific effect of these trade agreements on places like Detroit and Michigan. I mean, we, we have that debate all the time here about about these trade agreements, and there's a lot of people who will make the point, uh, uh, Ford and and other corporations, that uh, that NAFTA has created more uh, demand and and support for American uh, products and has protected uh, American jobs. Uh, I, I would imagine you see it very differently. Yeah, that's a little hard for me to see. I mean, you've had a lot of, uh, you know, particularly in the auto sector, you've had a lot of parts of the the auto sector shipped out to Mexico. And sure, you stole some jobs in Michigan. I mean, no doubt about it. But to argue that somehow that you on net have more jobs in the auto industry, or for that matter, manufacturing in general, because of NAFTA, that's, that's a really hard story to sell. I mean, you know, in effect, what that's saying is we'd have so much more imports. And, you know, and again, this would be imports, not just you know, cars that are produced domestically. We have so much more imports. When I'm saying cars produced domestically, I mean the transplants. Um, because if we didn't have NAFTA, that, that, that's a pretty hard story to believe. So, you know, I, I surely could believe that, you know, Ford and GM didn't have the option to have some of their parts made in Mexico, which, of course, they would have done anyhow. Yeah. But, uh, you know, had they not moved more, that they would have lost so much market share that we would have ended up net losers on that. I, I really find that... That's a pretty hard story to tell. Yeah. Okay. Dean Baker, economist and co-director for the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Thanks very much for being with us on Detroit Today. 
Thanks for having me on. Yeah. All right. And up next, we're going to continue our conversation about trade and the 2016 presidential election. Stay with us on the phones, too. 313-577-1019. I want to hear what you think about trade agreements and the candidates. What are they saying about trade? What does that mean to you? What does that mean here in Detroit and Michigan? Frank in Detroit, stay on the line. We'll get to you and everyone else. Give Get on the phones. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here. We're talking about trade deals, protectionism, and the 2016 election. Uh, I want to welcome to the show now Dan Eikenson. He is the Trade Policy Studies Director at the Cato Institute. Dan, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. Uh, so we had uh, Dean Baker uh, from the Center for Economic and Policy Research on uh, just before you, and uh, he sort of laid out the the, the, the critical case against uh, the, the the shape and demeanor and tone of trade agreements like the Trans-Pacific Partnership and NAFTA, uh, that these are not really even open trade agreements so much as they are uh, favorable agreements to, uh, to, to to businesses in terms of regulation and copyright uh, and patents and things like that. Uh, I imagine that you have a very different view of these trade agreements and their effect on the American economy and American jobs. Yeah, I mean, I think trade agreements are intended to sort of expand the market and uh, give people greater opportunities to exchange greater options for supply chains and how to produce things. And I don't always disagree with Dean Baker, but Dean, I think, takes a very hard-line approach uh, to these things. Um, I, I, it used to be the case that trade agreements were about border barriers and you know, reducing tariffs and facilitating customs procedures, and that was fairly non-controversial. Um, nowadays, because of you know, the proliferation of, of global supply chains, cross-border investment, transnational supply chains, um, we have protectionism sort of lurking behind the border. So a lot of measures to address protectionism um, address things like domestic regulations and laws, environmental laws, labor laws, um, data privacy issues, um, regulatory coherence. And so it's, uh, it's understandable why there is some objection to that, because it does, to some extent, threaten domestic sovereignty, the democratic processes, I think, however, that Dean Baker and people on the left have sort of overplayed uh, the the dangers of that, the costs of that. Um, trade liberalization is good for Americans. There is a narrative out there, I think, that is uh, that oversimplifies things. They views trade as an us versus them proposition, uh, Team USA against Team Mexico or Team China, uh, where you know exports are our points and imports. Are the foreign team's points in the trade account is the scoreboard, and we have a deficit, so we're losing a trade, and of course, we're losing because the foreign team cheats. That's right. that's the predominant narrative. The fact is, trade is just billions of billions of daily transactions between people uh, trying to get the most for their dollars, and uh, it's not a team sport. It's a win-win proposition. <laughs> There's lots of insourcing in the United States. We, Dean was talking about Ford and GM outsourcing to places like Mexico. We've got 
6.3 million Americans who work for foreign-owned companies right here in the United States. Uh, and those, those companies provide huge benefits uh, to the U.S. economy. So we need to look at both sides. So, so one of the things, though, that uh, Dean Baker was, was raising was who are the real beneficiaries of these policies? And he, he points out that, you know, if you're Microsoft, for instance, uh, these, these deals are great for you because they strengthen your, your copyrights and, and, and things like that, or if you have patents, uh, and that they are less beneficial for people at the bottom of the economic ladder, people who work in manufacturing plants, for instance, uh, uh, and see their jobs disappear or their wages uh, depressed because of competition from uh, from from other countries. Uh, how how do you answer that? I mean, what what's the? I I, I don't um, take issue with the, with the idea that there are some pro business uh, provisions in these trade agreements. I, I, I'm a, I'm for free trade, and that's free. That's pro market, not pro business. And a lot of the Provisions in some of these agreements do seem to uh, to, to undergird uh, U.S. export growth. The the argument, you know, with patent protection uh, and uh, um, copyright protection and things like that, we we quite frankly at Cato are a bit skeptical of of those kinds of provisions. We just did a comprehensive analysis of the TPP. It's thirty chapters. Um, Twenty two of them we were able to actually score and. Uh, uh, 15 of them we found net trade liberalizing. Five of them we found to be net protectionist, including the, the chapter on intellectual property. Uh, so so you don't necessarily support those those measures that are that are that, in that's the right. agreement. In, intellectual property. There's there's a debate among libertarians and among a lot of people about whether we need intellectual property protection, whether intellectual property. Is, you know, it's worthy of protection. I, I think it is. The question is how much. Right. Uh, and I think our, the copyright provisions in, in the TPP go too far. Life of the author plus 70 years, it seems excessive and unnecessary for um, uh, encouraging innovation. Um, so th- there, are, there are some problems with the TPP, but on par, on net, we find that it's, it's going to be beneficial for working Americans, for consumers, and, and for businesses, U.S. companies need to be able to compete in the global economy. And uh, if Ford or GM or any, any company is prohibited or impeded from sourcing some parts from abroad, uh, performing some uh, uh, production processes ab- abroad, it's going to have a hard time not only competing abroad, but competing here in the United States. Yeah. Um, there's plenty of opportunity. And, you know, trade's job is to grow the pie. And I think it's done a very good job of that. The problem is that there are labor market frictions. Uh, it's up to domestic policy to figure out how to remove those frictions, how to, um, how to divide the spoils. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't look at possible growing income inequality and say, we have to stop trade. Uh, it's a source. You feel like trade is not the culprit there, necessarily. No, trade trade is an engine. We need to harness it, and we need to we need policymakers who are going to do a better job of attracting investment to places where jobs have gone away. Yeah. Um, you know, that we have a federalist system. We have states that uh, do a much better job of attracting foreign investment than others. Um, so we need to look at policies like regulatory policies, and tax policies, infrastructure, education. There's a a lot of things that factor into this, and rather than blame foreigners, 
and their products, which seems to be a quadrennial problem uh, every time we have a presidential election year. Uh, we, you know, let's look to other states that have been successful. South Carolina, Tennessee, Alabama, on a per capita basis, attract a lot of investment, uh, more so than Michigan traditionally has. Yeah, well, but they're doing it with they're doing it with the non-union environments and lower lower wages. I mean, and that's the concern, right? No, no, non-union environments, more, more of a, a pro-business uh, uh, environment. But it's it's not only that. Um, it's a combination of things. And uh, and if they're doing it with non-union, in a non-union environment, if that is succeeding, maybe that maybe that means something. Maybe that's important information to... Well, it means you can work for less and have a job, but it's, <laughs> uh, it's not an answer to the loss of high-paying uh, union jobs in places like Michigan. Let's go to, let's go to Matthew uh, here. Uh, Matthew, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for yeah. the conversation. This is really, really great. Sure. Um, my point was I, just, I feel like when we're talking about trade and the economy in general that we have a tendency to assume that a lot of the things that have been happening are just kind of like natural occurrences. A gentleman earlier referred to automation. Um, automation wouldn't have happened if it weren't for massive government support and investment. Um, the things that we're seeing in the economy are the result of policy. Sure. Um, and I think that we kind of lose sight of that. We act like these things, whether it's technology or automation, just kind of happen magically, uh, and they don't. And in terms of the trade agreements, I think in terms of who they're benefiting, if you look at what the goals of the people who are writing these trade agreements are, these are not agreements to make sure workers around the world can exercise their basic human right to unionize, right? These are agreements that are meant to protect property, that are meant to protect investments. Um, That's the focus of them. And I think if we take that limited look at trade, that trade only means what is in the interest of the people with the money, with the capital, um, we're missing a whole huge piece of the pie. Yeah. Yeah, Matthew, thanks very much uh, for your call and for those thoughts. Let's go to Frank in Detroit. Frank, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, thank you, Stephen Henderson. You're having a very important program, and I really appreciate uh, the speakers that you've had on. Well, thank you. Um, and I think you wanted to contextualize it in regard to the election coming up in the fall. Yeah. I have, uh, I'm a, G- a retired GM worker. I live in Detroit. I was involved in the fight against NAFTA back in 1993. So I've been fighting uh, what are corporate uh, designed and corporate implemented agreements that benefit the elites of the U.S. and benefit the elites of the countries with which we are doing so-called free trade. And it's done at the expense of the masses of people in the respective countries. And NAFTA is a terrific example of this where uh, undoubtedly, uh, hundreds of thousands of auto jobs were affected in the industry that I worked. And in the same breath, Mexican farmers, Mexican small farmers were driven off the land by virtue of the flooding of Mexico with U.S. corn. And the point to be made is that, that not only does it impact adversely in the United States, but it also adversely impacts the countries that the trade agreements are made with, yeah. except for the elites. Right. In those countries. Yeah. So Frank, coming, into yeah, the, coming, into the, uh, coming into the election, we have two candidates, neither of which I would trust with my free, tr- with my free trade <laughs> agreement. Certainly with Trump, 
He's not saying he opposes free trade agreements because of their impact on workers. In fact, on the contrary, he wants to maintain the minimum wage where it is right now at seven fifty an hour, and he wants to uh, uh, reduce the living standards of auto workers further. So whatever opposition he has to free trade agreements is not based on workers' interests. Right. And in regards to Hillary, I think this is very important that Hillary has in the past gone back and forth on the question of free trade agreements. Sure, the notable one that I think yeah. is very important is the Colombia free trade agreement yes. because prior, while Bush was in office, both Obama and Clinton expressly opposed the Colombia free trade agreement because Colombia had such a horrendous record of assassinating yeah. labor yeah. organizers in that country. Right. But after their elections, they and went once back Secretary and uh, Clinton was in yeah. a Department of State, and once Obama was in office, they flipped on yeah. the Colombia Free uh, Trade uh, Agreement, uh, and they did it on the basis of a so-called uh, labor protection agreement. Yeah, Frank, th- th- thank for, uh, thanks very much uh, for that call, Frank. Those are really important points. We're running out of time, and I want to get uh, Dan Eikenson to respond to those things. I mean, you, you were talking earlier about uh, domestic policy being the answer to these problems, but but uh, th- th- we don't see a lot of development of that domestic policy to, to sort of deal with the kind of things that Frank and Matthew were talking about. Well, look, each each uh, caller had raised some good points, and I, I understand where they're coming from. Uh, but I also I, mean, I want to point out that there are some myths out there that we need to address. Let's 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 disentangle some of the the facts from the fiction. One one thing is that. The manufacturing sector in the United States is really thriving. I know it's hard to say that to people in Detroit because manufacturing well, I mean, employment... It's, it's doing better here than it was. There's no question. Well, right. I mean, nationally, manufacturing has always been doing well. And we've gone through recessions. Right. Uh, but from an output perspective, value-added, revenues, return on investment, manufacturing sets records year after year after year. It's just that we peaked. Uh, employment in manufacturing peaked in 1979 yeah. at 19.4 million, and now we're at about 12.5 million. So right. the, the sector doesn't support all these jobs, but we need to make a distinction here between the, 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 the condition of manufacturing and the capacity of manufacturing to employ people. The fact that we're making a lot more value uh, with far fewer people. That's the objective of economics. Yeah. See, I guess that's where I think that's where we probably would part ways. I think there there has to be a more sort of balanced view of the goal of of that kind of economics. And unfortunately, uh, we could have a we could have a two hour debate about that. I'm sure you and I. But uh, I'm out of time, so <laughs> so I'm going to have to let you well, go. It, yeah. It's always easy to create jobs if yeah. you want to get people make work. I saw yeah. people digging up my road uh, <laughs> again, filling it up again. Yeah. All right, Dan Eikenson, Trade Policy Studies Director at Cato Institute. Thank you for being here. Thanks for all the callers today too. Great conversation. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will too. This is 1019 WDT Detroit, Wayne State's Public Radio Station.